Thank you, Nell. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1. If you have a um, prayer slip or visitor slip, Martin or and or Will will pick those up and we will pray for you this week. Matthew chapter 1, and we'll pick up with verse 1 in just a moment. But before we do, let's bow together in prayer. Father, we have sung this morning, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. And we pray, praise you that you've come and will come again. You were born to set your people free. Praise be to God for the redemption and forgiveness we know through Jesus our Lord. From our fears and sins, release us. I pray, Lord, that your grace would be moving in us this morning as we celebrate who you are. That, Lord, we would long to be in your presence. And that we would be set free from bondages and things that are besetting in our life to walk in the fullness of our salvation, that we would find our rest in Thee. For You are our hope, the hope of all the earth, and joy of every longing heart. I pray that You would open Your Word to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. The prophecies surrounding the Lord Jesus Christ coming are truly breathtaking. His birth was predicted in... Bethlehem by Micah the prophet, chapter 5, verse 2. The manner of his birth was spoken of through, uh, by Isaiah, where he said that a virgin would conceive and would bring forth a son. That was fulfilled in the birth of Christ. The, the family of his birth would be David, for God said that through David, one would always reign on his throne. That was fulfilled ultimately in the coming of Jesus Christ. I invite you to Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, because maybe the chances are good that if you've tried to read through the New Testament, you've picked up with verse 18, not verse 1. And so, you know me by now that we're going to read into the record of our corporate worship this seemingly list, insignificant list of names, and they're not. And I'm wanting you to have a renewed love this morning for how God works in history and brings His promises to a completion and fulfillment. Matthew 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zara by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, by the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers, at the time of the deportation of Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. And Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel the father of Abuad. And Abuad the father of Elikim. 
and Elikim the father of Atzor, and Atzor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the, the father of Eluid, and Eluid the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. There we have it. I could only imagine how Emile Bergeron might have felt if I would have given him that passage for the Advent reading. So thankful for how he summarized that from Galatians 4, in the fullness of time, Jesus Christ came from the Father. And so as we look at this, um, I, I want to just say this is, this is the bridge from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Um, never try to understand the New Testament apart from, from the Old Alistair Begg referred to a friend who, a preacher friend, who said, that white page in between Malachi and Matthew is a real problem. You can tear that out of your Bible because you need a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. Indeed, these things were written for our learning that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. That God's story is a full story. It's a redemptive story. And Matthew's gospel was placed at the beginning of the New Testament writing, not because it was the first book written, it wasn't. Matthew was a Jew, and much of his appeal in the gospel uh, appeals to the Jewish reader. So, um, you know, as we look at Matthew's beginning, it begins with a list of names, and it really is the bridge and brings a continuity to all that we've learned or, or would learn in the Old Testament. John, in his gospel, begins with a poetic statement. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Luke, writing as a physician and a historian, said to you, Theophilus, and he gives this ordered historical account of the birth of Jesus Christ. He mentions historical figures and said Jesus came in this way. And then Mark, which was the first gospel, it's second in the chronology, but it was the first one written, begins with a sense of urgency. The gospel of Jesus Christ begins in this way. But Matthew begins by building a bridge from the Old Testament to the New. And you can understand the coming of Jesus. You cannot understand His coming unless you understand it in light of the big picture that the Bible provides. Pilate once asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Where are you from? The Messiah was not airdropped into the earth. Matthew begins that, with the promises of God. And genealogies kind of are foreign to us because more and more we're becoming a culture that's not established in any kind of family root, any kind of family tree. We become so individualistic in our pursuits. Who we really are is where we came from. I'm reminded of the old song in the 70s by Jim Croce, I Got a Name. Like the pine trees lining the winding roads, I got a name, I got a name. Like the singing bird and the croaking toad, I, I got a name, I got a name. And I carry it with me like my daddy did. 
When we leave the last of the prophets, Malachi, there's a period of silence about 400, 450 years before John the Baptist steps on the scene. Now, I want you to think of your life for a moment. 450 years of silence. The last, thus saith the Lord, came from Malachi, and there wouldn't be another in that sense until John the Baptist came. And you're longing. All these promises have been given. God has promised to bring a deliverer. He promised in the garden he would bring one that would crush the head of Satan. All of the pictures that come from the Mosaic law and the tabernacle. The prophets spoke of a Messiah who would come, a son who would be born. And 450 years pass, and what are you beginning to think about that promise? He's not coming. It's all fiction. He's not returning. One of the joys for me as a preacher of the gospel during Advent season is to remind us that God keeps His promises. Stand on the promises of God and you'll always be relevant because He's over history. Matthew begins with the genealogy of Jesus to establish the claims of His Messiahship. I once read there there were a hundred people in California claiming to be Jesus Christ. That makes perfect sense, doesn't it? It's one thing to make a claim. It's another to say, I can substantiate that claim. I can stand on this claim. And that's what Matthew's trying to do as he's presenting that Jesus is the one and true Messiah. Far from a list of difficult to pronounce names, genealogies were more than a hobby for the Jew. There's been a lot of interest in recent years, legacy.com and where am I from, where's my family tree, where are my roots. For the Jew, it was more than a hobby or curiosity. Genealogies were critical in order to establish these things, the sale or redistribution of property in Israel. You couldn't just sell off 40 acres because you felt like it. These were given to the tribes of Israel. They were allotments. Maybe you remember reading in Proverbs where it says, don't move the ancient boundaries. That's what it's talking about. Genealogies were critical for rights of inheritance. The basis of taxation. We could skip that, but nevertheless, it was used to establish that. Any claim to the priesthood. And so just looking at these for just a moment, ancestry determined one's claim on land based on the original tribal allocation of the land of Palestine, which we read of in Joshua and fulfilled throughout the Old Testament. Genealogy determined claims to the right of inheritance. To the Jew, the genealogy was the most natural, most interesting, and most essential way to begin the story of any man's life. So for Matthew, this is an a natural beginning to his gospel with the genealogy. Where is he from? Who is he? What claims is he making? The Jews were very interested in this. Great weight was put on the purity of one's lineage. If there was mixture of foreign blood, he lost his right to be called a Jew and a member of the people of God. A priest was required to produce an unbroken lineage all the way back to Aaron. The brother of Moses, the first high priest. And his wife had to produce her pedigree for at least five generations. Now all of this is Jewish um, tradition and Jewish um, uh, requirements. 
We're not required to do that. I'm so glad of that. We'll see in just a moment that even in Jesus' family tree, it seems to highlight His grace and His whole purpose for coming. During the exile, Ezra, the priest, was reorganizing the worship of God. And after the people returned from exile, they were setting in order the priesthood and had to determine those making a claim to the priesthood had to have the paperwork. (laughs) Oh, you're claiming to be a priest? Let me see your lineage. And it says in the text, these sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found. They couldn't go to some government agency to get a copy. You're not on the list. You can't serve. These genealogical records were kept by the Sanhedrin, and Herod the Great was always despised by the pure-blood Jew because he was half an Edomite. And we can see the importance that even Herod attached to these genealogies from the fact that he had the official registers destroyed so that no one could prove a purer pedigree than his own, of course. This may seem, may seem to, to us to be really an uninteresting passage, but to the Jew, it was a most impressive matter that the pedigree of Jesus could be traced all the way back to Abraham. And that's where we are in Matthew 1. So let me begin with, but just by asking a question. What's in a name? Look at verse 1. This is amazing to me. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. A couple of things that come right off uh, the page to me. The word biblios is really not mere, a mere book, but a sacred writing. That Jesus Christ, Christ is not his last name. I don't know if you knew that or not. It's not his last name. Jesus the anointed one. Jesus the Messiah is the understanding. Christos is interpreted Messiah, the anointed one. Used without the article, it has the character of a personal name. With the article, it is a title of the one promised in the Old Testament. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. So Matthew arranges this genealogy in three sections. From Abraham to David. From David to the exile into Babylon. And Babylon to Jesus Christ. What does that say to us? That God goes to great detail to communicate the foundation for our faith. The Christian faith is not a leap in the dark how often we emphasize this. It's God moving through history. This account, through these generations, God fulfilled his promises. Going back to verse 1, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. What's interesting about that? Anything stick out in your mind? If you're familiar with biblical chronology, you, you, you understand that David was born after Abraham, maybe 700 years or so after Abraham. So why is he mentioned first? Because anyone claiming to be the king of Israel had to come from the line of David. And so Matthew's establishing Jesus' genealogy comes from the line of David, the son of David, the son of Abraham, all the way back to the father of the Jewish nation, So it proved that Jesus is the son of David, 
And the title, Son of David, is mentioned throughout Matthew more than any other gospel. The wise men came looking for him who is king of the Jews. Matthew's picture of Jesus is of the man born to be a king. And so Jesus walks through the pages of this gospel in purple and in gold, the purple and gold of royalty. And so the purpose of the family tree is to stress the fact that Jesus was from the lineage of David. It's one thing to say you're the Messiah. It's another thing to say my roots go all the way back to God's promise to David that one would sit on on the throne of David forever. And this was in the preaching of the New Testament. Peter at Pentecost said in Acts 2, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us today. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne. And that is Jesus Christ. Paul said in Romans 1, Jesus Christ descended from David according to the flesh. In the pastoral letters, Paul said, He urged men to remember that Jesus Christ descended from David, raised from the dead. It was at the heart of of the preaching of the apostles. And John says in the Revelation, the last chapter of the Bible, he hears the risen Christ say, I am the root and offspring of David. Throughout the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is referred as the son of David because of God's promises, which leads, secondly, God keeps them. Now, we could go through every name. We're not going to do that. (laughs) I'm going to hit the highlights. But I pray that you would not pass this section of Scripture and you would allow these names to take you back throughout the Old Testament and to remember key moments of how God moved in their lives as a part of His redemptive history. And your faith would be strengthened because of it. He mentions in verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. So after the scattering of the nations at the Tower of Babel because of human pride, as they sought to build a tower that reached to God, which would serve as a template for all tyrannical regimes that would come after. In Genesis 12, God chose Abraham. God elected Abraham and said, from you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I'm calling you to start a great nation. I will make you a great nation. All the families of the earth will be blessed. We are blessed because of that covenant that God uh, entered into with Abraham, which became the conduit to bring us our Lord and Savior, Christ. There's only one thing you need to have if you're going to be the father of a great nation. You need to have a son, which was a problem for Sarah and Abraham because Sarah was barren, the scripture tells us, and they're not getting any younger. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says when they were past, when Sarah was past childbearing years, she conceived. Abraham, 100, Sarah, 90, and little Isaac was born. His name means laughter in the Hebrew because that's what they did when they heard that Sarah would have a baby. They laughed. How could God's promises ever come to pass And we read in the text here that Abraham was the father of Isaac. Throughout Abraham's life in Genesis 18, right before he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, 
the angels said among themselves, Shall I hide from Abram all that I'm about to do, since he will be a great nation? And David just, or excuse me, Abraham just uh, came to the point of, of saying, what, Whatever the Lord does is right. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is right? I will trust in him. Think about that. You're 100 years old and God's promised that you're going to be a great nation. What do we tend to do when time passes? We wonder if God's going to keep his word. He keeps it. A second um, name I want to mention is in verse 6. David. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. I've mentioned a couple of times already. In 2 Samuel 7, God said that, that David's kingdom would be made sure forever before the Lord. And that one would sit on the throne of David forever. Well, how would that be accomplished? That was accomplished through what Matthew did in this genealogy. That Jesus Christ has come and he is a king. And this has just come to me time and time again. Okay, Jesus is the King of kings, Lord of lords. We're called to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I don't see his kingdom. No, you don't. Not at present time. He's established the kingdom you enter into by faith. And one day, our faith shall be made sight. The kingdom's come, but it's not yet. So how do I get into his kingdom? I enter into his kingdom by faith in him alone resting in his promises alone. And I begin to see what I've never seen before, that God is working in this world and he will bring all things to conclusion as he sees fit. And so God kept the immediate promise, the immediate fulfillment of this promise to David in the birth of Solomon. David was the father of Solomon and the ultimate fulfillment in David's future son, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's one other name I want to bring to your attention. That's in verses 11 and 12. Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation of Babylon. This is, this is a, a critical moment in Israel's history, a, a really a, a, a major event in the Old Testament, and that is that Israel would be taken into captivity by the Babylonians. The prophets warned them, Jeremiah in particular. And we read of this king, Jeconiah, Jehoiachin, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers. This was a low point at Israel's history, in Israel's history, a devastating captivity. We read a little bit about that in Psalm 137, where, where the psalmist said, we sat down and we wept. We hung our harps on the willow tree because we, we, how can you sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? We didn't believe the prophets, and here we are sitting by this stinking canal because of our sins. Isn't that something when the prophets preach? Few believe that there's going to be a judgment. No, not to me, not us. Look how great we've got it. Nobody believes that there's going to be a judgment today. Pull people today. You see an urgency today? You see, see a sense of, of things aren't right? I, 
I need to get right with God. Do you see hunger? I, I don't see much of it. And I think one of the important takeaways for us when we come to worship is that we would, we would sense within us the urgency that comes from God's word that we would serve the Lord and love the Lord and honor the Lord in our generation. Our generation. Don't be lulled to sleep by the thousands of distractions that are out there. We renew our love to him and we leave to serve him today. May it be so. William Barclay said, there's, some, there's something of great significance here in this genealogy. It's clear that it was the crowd, the common people, the ordinary folk who addressed Jesus as the son of David. The Jews were awaiting people. They never forgot and never could forget that they were the chosen people of God, although their history was one long series of disasters Although at this very time, they were a subject people. They never forgot their destiny. And it was the dream of the common people that into this world would come a descendant of David who would lead them to the glory which they believed to be theirs by right. The only problem is they missed it once again. For Jesus came to his own and his own received him not. But to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become sons of God, even to those who believe on his name. So Jeconiah is a, a failed king. In fact, God judged him and said that none of his sons would sit on the throne. Well, how do you, oh, that, that seems to break it, doesn't it? God's never put in a box. Through the virgin birth, through the genealogy in Luke's gospel, chapter 3, God would establish his promises and the rightful claim of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look with me, thirdly. God shows his grace in spectacular ways. This is how I want us to close. I think it's a wonderful runway for us to come, or maybe a path to ponder uh, the Lord's Supper. God shows his grace in spectacular ways. One of the things we note that's peculiar about Matthew's genealogy is the inclusion of women in it. Genealogies were male-dominated in Jewish life. Women had no place in the Jewish mind. Um, in fact, I've, I've mentioned recently, the Jewish man thanked God every morning that he wasn't a woman or a Gentile. And Jesus I think we find in the Gospels clearly that he rescued women from that stigma. Where do we find women in Jesus' ministry? They're following devotedly. When all the disciples bail, who's at the foot of the cross? It's the women, save John. And so we find three women here, but they're not the kind of women you want in your family tree. Oh no, I wouldn't have included Aunt Tamar. Verse 3, this is her story. And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. And your mind goes back in the Old Testament. Oh, that's Genesis 38. I wonder why that's in the Bible. It's so sordid an account. You can't read it in open public so comfortably. Why is that there? 
to show that God's grace and power and sovereignty overcomes human sin and neglect. And so Tamar dressed herself as a prostitute and appealed to her father-in-law, Judah, who had not kept his promises. And she conceived by him. I'm not sure I would want that in my family tree, Pastor. All of us have a family tree. We have instances that we wish weren't there. Perhaps it's even us. Tamar was a deliberate seducer and adulteress. She's there. And then maybe it gets worse because we read of Rahab in verse 5. Rahab in verse 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Where do we meet her? We meet her in the book of Joshua. She's the prostitute who runs a brothel from the city wall. In those days, the, the walls of the city uh, had apartments and houses in them. She ran a brothel from the walls of Jericho. But she received the spies, and she said to the spies, I've heard of your God. God had been moving in her. She hid the spies, sent to spy out the land, and, um, and she was one to faith because later she married Salmon, who was the father of Boaz in the line of Jesus Christ. Rahab, the shady lady from Jericho, in the tree, the family tree of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Then there's Ruth, verse 5. She was a sweet woman. She was a dear daughter-in-law to Naomi. Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. Ruth was there in the genealogy. She's not even a Jew. She's a Moabitess. And in the law of God in Deuteronomy 23... Verse 3, no Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None belonging to them shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever. That seems strong. Well, they had been unkind and cruel to Israel in their wilderness wanderings. Ruth belonged to an alien and hated people by the Jews. But she's in the tree of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then Bathsheba. She's not mentioned by name. But look at verse 6. Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon. By the wife of Uriah. We know from 2 Samuel 11 and 12. That that was Bathsheba. It was a time when kings went out to war. And David was out on the palace. Loitering around the castle. When he probably should have been um, somewhere else. And he's looking out and she's bathing and one thing leads to another and they're in adultery. And she conceives. And David learns of her conception. Uriah was one of the mighty men of David. He was a wonderful, faithful, loyal soldier. And he had come home and he, David was trying to cover his tracks. But he wouldn't even go into his house. Slept on his porch while the men were out in the field. And so David sends forth a message to kill him. He sends a message to Joab. Put, it, put Uriah on the front of the battle. And when it's at its hottest, withdraw from him. 
that he may perish by the sword. So David's done really well now, hasn't he? He's committed adultery with one of his most faithful soldiers. And he's murdered him because he couldn't cover his tracks with an alibi. Well, that sounds like a fine episode to put in your family line, isn't it? And so the first baby died. Bathsheba conceived again and gave birth to Solomon. Barclay once again, if Matthew had ransacked the pages of the Old Testament for improbable candidates, he could not have discovered four more incredible ancestors for Jesus Christ. But there's something very precious here. Matthew, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, shows us in symbol the essence of the gospel. For here he shows us the far reaches of his grace and mercy. Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous but sinners. What a pathetic family tree. Just like yours. And just like mine. What is showcased here is God's grace. If Jesus had such descendants in his family tree, why shouldn't we be surprised that he has such people as his followers? I, I find such hope here. In the shame of this world, it only seems to magnify what, what, what Christ has done. So could I just close with these thoughts, lessons of salvation from a family tree. And here's the first one. God deals with sinners, not perfect people. If, you, if you're to understand the gospel right, you need to understand yourself as someone who has fallen short of God's glory. This is counterintuitive to everything we know in this life, which tells you you need to work harder, you need to pay harder. Certainly you can earn it, but you can't earn God's forgiveness. God deals with sinners. The world believes that God receives good people and rejects bad people. Friends, we're all bad people. If you haven't learned anything uh, from this year in Romans 1 through 3, I pray that you would learn that. Every last one of us has fallen short of God's glory. We can boast about nothing in his presence. I'm glad that God deals with sinners. And it's not based upon our perfection. Secondly, God uses the turmoil of our lives to fulfill his purposes. When I go through this genealogy, I just think of the national disasters. I think of the personal disasters. And God is weaving through his story. That's incredible. That's incredible comfort if you're living in the backwash of a failure this morning. That God's not done with me. He uses the messy lives of this world to fulfill his purposes. Thirdly, God doesn't operate on our timetable. When we read the Bible, may it expand our understanding of history. Some of us are so focused on the now, all we can think about is Monday morning. <laughs> all we can think about what's going on this afternoon. And we don't see our lives in the continuum of God's redemptive story. Listen, friends, in Jesus Christ, our destiny is, is before the throne of God above. That's our destiny. And the lives we live by faith, we live in, in faith upon the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. 
Something else I find in this genealogy, particularly as, as Matthew inserted these, these women, um, is that Jesus' family tree uh, contained moral, moral outcasts. And it's ethnically diverse. What's that mean for an assembly like us living in the 21st century? That all sinners, high and low and rich and poor, <laughs> are, are called to come to him. He is this world's only savior. And there's no sin that he cannot forgive. God's grace can wipe the slate clean in your messy life. Your troubled family tree, your conscience, he can wipe it clean. If you'll come to him in the open arms of faith and cast your soul at his feet. David, who's mentioned in this genealogy, living in the backwash of his adultery and murder, Prayed in Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Wash me thoroughly of my iniquity. Cleanse me. Make me new. And then he said, then I will tell transgressors your ways. And I'll tell others how wonderful you are to a wretch like me. That they might have hope in your grace. Would you bow with me in prayer? Our praise team is coming and they'll lead us in just a moment. If you've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I pray that he would be your Messiah today. Of all the claims that you can consider in a life, of all the truth claims that are offered, I pray that you would cast the anchor of your soul upon the promises of Jesus. Not only did he claim it, it's backed up and substantiated, not only in the word of God, but in changed lives that you see even today. His death on the cross was your once-for-all payment for sin. His resurrection means he's alive right now. He sees all that is going on in his church. He knows every detail of your life. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows the thoughts of your mind. He knows the words that come out of your mouth even before you speak them. So why in the world is he not your God? Why is he not your Savior? All truth claims, I believe, lead to him. Would you call out to him now? How do I do that? Well... I don't think it's about a fancy prayer. I think it's about the cry of your heart. Lord Jesus, I need you. Be merciful to me, a sinner. The service is planned and guided that we might make decisions like that. And I, I pray that the Lord's working on you, that even this morning, you would call out to him. For believers, as we gather in this place, it is a time for us to proclaim our faith, to draw near to God.
and he's pledged to draw near to us. Father, I pray that as we come to the Lord's table, that we would proclaim your death until you come. For you were named Jesus by your earthly parents. For you came to save your people from their sins. Lead us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our praise team is going to lead us in song. I will glory in my Redeemer, and I'll come and give us some instructions as we take of the bread and drink of the cup.
praise team. In the scripture, the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What a glorious privilege that is for us this morning to proclaim what he has done for us. Let's take our cup and begin with the bread. And before we take it, let's pray to him. Father, we thank you for this time together as a church family. And as we have this bread before us as a symbol of your body given over for us, your sinless life, your, your obedience purchased our redemption, your suffering uh, shed the blood necessary to be the propitiation for our sins. And we confess our sins to you, Lord. We thank you for purchasing us by your blood, for bringing us to yourself and would ask as we take today that you would be with us in a special way as we eat of the bread and drink of this cup. Let's take this bread and together eat it in remembrance of him. When he took the cup, it was a symbol of a new covenant the only covenant operative today for any of us to be in the presence of God is the new covenant. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. May we drink together now remembering what he's done for us. And such a message requires a response and that's how we're going to close this service right now. Perhaps, uh, as I mentioned earlier, you're here today without a saving relationship with Christ. You know you need him. You know you need to surrender to him. And we would urge you to do that today by his grace. Maybe there are other decisions on your life, things that are besetting you, troubling you. He has come to set us free that we might have life and have it more abundantly. Let's stand together as we sing. If there are needs on your heart, on your life that you'd like to talk about, we would be glad to pray with you. Let's sing together this wonderful song.